0: Well, good morning. I want to welcome you all to our service, and I know a number of our beloved family members um, are absent this week with the sniffles after having too good a time at retreat. I definitely want to um, give a shout out and thank you for everybody who served on our family retreat last week. It was just an incredible blessing for our family, and if you didn't make it to retreat last year, this year, Hopefully, you'll get there in the year to come, past, present, and future, because uh, it was really a a blessed and sweet time. Well, um, could I have my first slide, please? This morning, we're going to uh, get started a little bit. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, but it is Reformation Sunday, and uh, I know everybody's getting geared up for the big event in our lives is Halloween, but it is Reformation Sunday. And actually, there's a connection between the two. Because um, October 31st, 1517, was when a German monk named Martin Luther, and he was also a seminary professor, nailed his 95 Theses to the cathedral door in Wittenberg, All Saints Church. And he did it on October 31st in all likelihood because the next day was the celebration of All Saints Day, a day to celebrate all the saints in the Catholic Church who had passed away. And you would honor them and venerate them, depending on which one you liked, in order to be connected with whatever blessing that they had to give. And so the night before, October 31st, is All Hallows' Eve from which we get Halloween, and I don't know the connection between candy and ghosts, but anyways, that's where we will go. But for Martin Luther, this is the time that he had a statement to make. A thesis is a proposition or a statement that you present in academic circles for the purpose of discussion or debate and martin luther nailed these 95 theses they were written in latin not in german so it was meant primarily for his seminary students and for the professors of the seminary and the cathedral there he also sent a letter to the pope and some of the and the archbishop i believe and this was meant to be for to some degree scholarly discussion and this was done in response to the selling of indulgences And that word indulgence comes from the Latin word indulgentia, which means permit. Like you get a driver's license or you get a permit for your gun. And an indulgence was an official declaration or certification that was given by the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church, allegedly on behalf of Christ, for a reduction or a remission of divine punishment for your sin. And of course, at this time, what was happening is it was being sold and you could get a piece of paper that lets you know how much you would get off of your time in purgatory or how much temporal punishment would be removed for the purchase of this declaration or this permit that would release you or give you a remission from the consequences of some of your sins. Now, this was being sold in order to raise money for the construction of a cathedral that many of us love to visit, the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica. It was a fundraiser for that, like selling chocolates or candies, right? And I know this sounds absolutely crazy, right? Who would go and buy a piece of paper that says that you get so many years out of purgatory or so much remission for your sins um, and to get that statement from The Pope or the Roman Catholic Church, but in fact, these were selling like wildfire. And people who had very little money and many of the working class in Germany, and this is why it grieved Martin Luther's soul so much, is that people, common people, poor people, were selling everything they had in order to get this piece of paper from the church and from the Pope to say that somehow their sins were being handled or dealt with and they could be made right with God. Now, I know this sounds absolutely crazy to us, but in fact, there's a godless logic and a very self-righteous logic to this whole economy and system that is all too familiar to us even to this day. We have this tendency that if we do something wrong that offends God or offends others, We tend to believe that there's things that we can say or do to make things right. There are things that we can say or do to redeem ourselves or get ourselves out of the doghouse. Right? With a spouse, a family member, a friend. And we have a tendency, similarly, if someone offends us, there's typically a list of things that we expect them to say or do to make things right. And for them to get out of our doghouse. And if they don't say those things or do those things or they only do some of them. We can be a little bit, right? Do I lie? Okay, it's about an economy of righteousness. And it's about a meritocracy that believes there are things that we can do or say. And as long as we do more good things than bad things. We'll be okay with God and we'll be okay with other people. And brothers and sisters, we applaud this in sports. We want to see this in sports. When someone in the NBA or the NFL, an athlete does something terrible, whether there's a domestic dispute or they do something terrible off the field, the commissioner who is more or less functioning like the Pope, he gives a fine and he gives a suspension and he asks that person to do community service and to pay a certain amount of money and if they do enough of those things, or if they win a Super Bowl or a championship, they get a pass. Welcome back. Everything's good. Fine with us. They've redeemed themselves. And they talk about this. And brothers and sisters, not only do we applaud this on the field and in these places like sports and entertainment, but how much of that seeps into how we function at work, and our homes, our marriage, and our ministries... And in every aspect of our lives. And ultimately, in many ways we can say, are we that much different than the world in which Martin Luther was protesting and calling out that this is far, far, far from the heart and love and goodness of God and the gospel. Well, with Martin Luther's very first thesis of those 95 theses that he nails To that cathedral door in Wittenberg. He calls our attention to the Lordship and Word, not of a Pope or a pastor, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's calling us back to Jesus. And that first thesis states when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers. To be one of repentance. And Martin Luther here is actually quoting from Matthew 4, 17. And it's in this way Martin Luther is being used by God to point us back to the good news of God's Word. That the righteousness and mercy that all sinners, you and I, so desperately need, is not the righteousness and mercy of men. Not the righteousness and mercy of a pope, not the righteousness and mercy of a pastor, not the righteousness and mercy of an institution or a program, be it the church or anything else. The righteousness and mercy we need is a righteousness and mercy that God has graciously already given us and paid for in the life and lordship of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because of this, brothers and sisters, our only hope in making things right, first with the Lord, our spouses, our co-workers, our friends, is not to try and fix things ourselves or do a payoff. It's to turn to Him, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And not just for a minute or a moment, as Martin Luther's pointing out, with his sound exegesis of Matthew 4.17. But it's turn, to turn to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the entirety of our lives, with the entirety of our lives. Everything. And the Lord shows us through the lives of the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, this is the life that Jesus is talking about with the Beatitudes. And in Matthew 5 When Jesus declares what is blessed by God, this is the life he's declaring to be blessed by God. It's a life that has been transformed and changed and taken over by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a new life in Christ. It's a life of a child of God. This is what a life of a child of God is. And this is the life, brothers and sisters, that God gives us freely in the gospel. And this is the life that Jesus declares to be blessed. Why? Because this is the life of God's righteousness and God's mercy, not ours. And for Jesus and for the disciples, there is nothing more valuable. Not a big church, not a big home, not a big car, not a big partnership. It's the righteousness and mercy of God, which is priceless and worth everything. And it's given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, brothers and sisters, as we go through the beatitude very specifically of what it means to be merciful and blessed are the merciful, our big truth this morning is that the righteousness and mercy of Christ's kingdom, those are the righteousness and mercy of God, not men. Now I know that sounds obvious. But as religious people, it's something we struggle with and we get confused and we mix and match where suddenly our righteousness and mercy that we're dealing with is our righteousness and mercy and not the righteousness and mercy of the cross. And yet we'll see that what Jesus came to do and why he came and he died and gave his life for you and me is not that we could stick around in our righteousness and our economy of what's right and wrong and what we think is right and what works for us but instead that we might enjoy the beauty and grace of the righteousness and mercy of the God who created us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read this morning from verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Seeing the crowds, he went up in the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Of the Lord. Well, with these words, this passage, what's known as the Beatitudes, Jesus is teaching his disciples and us what it means to be a true child of God, what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. And you'll notice, not by accident, that there's a progression with the Beatitudes. They move as the Christian life moves, and they grow as we grow. And beginning with what His disciples are now in this fallen world. Where do they start? What are they? As they've come to Christ, and yet they're still living in a world that is fallen and depraved. They are poor in spirit. But then Jesus moves to what they will be given by God. What they will become and what they will do. And it's worth noticing as we go through this, there are no commands in the Beatitudes. It's who we are by the grace of God, what we are given by the grace of God, and what we will become by the grace of God. All God's unmerited favor, not the works of men anywhere in this. Our salvation, our life in Christ is entirely a gift and work of the grace of God in Christ. And that's why we don't get to boast about it. And that's why we don't get to hold it over other people. And brothers and sisters, this is a joy that frees us from a life that is bound by living for ourselves, by our rules and what works best for ourselves. And we see as Jesus gives us this big picture of moving us through of what the Christian life is like, which is very much centered on the grace of God and its transformation of our life. we, We see that it's about so much more, brothers and sisters, than just sitting in church and listening to a sermon on Sunday morning. God's plan of salvation for you is more than this. It's about being redeemed and transformed inside out by the grace of God to become like Jesus. Because that, brothers and sisters, is what true righteousness is all about. It's about being like Jesus And it's for this reason, right in the middle of these beatitudes in verse 6 and 7, Jesus brings this life that he's talking about to his righteousness and his mercy. It's right there in the center. And the righteousness and mercy that Jesus is talking about here is obviously and very clearly not the righteousness of a pastor or a pope, but the righteousness and mercy that God alone can give. And this brings us to our first point this morning. God's grace leads us to His righteousness and His mercy in Christ, not ours. God's grace leads us to His righteousness and His mercy in Christ, not ours. And this is what separates the Pharisees and the Sadducees from the disciples. And this is what separates false religion from true religion. The good news of God's Word is that God doesn't give sinners a new life of repentance and faith in Christ to bring us to a megachurch or a program or to make us right with a pastor or a pope. He gives us a new life in Christ to bring us to himself and to make us right with himself. The whole purpose of our scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the whole purpose of the gospel, God in love and mercy and grace is bringing his sinful children and providing a way for them to know him and bring them back to himself. And brothers and sisters, I say this because we can lose this and lose sight of this in church. We get saved, we get religious, and then life is about running ministries, and life is about doing the right things, and life is about being part of a conference or being part of a mission. And we can lose sight very quickly as we get enthusiastic and people get excited about participating in something that's bigger than ourselves. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, do we even know the God who called us? Do we even know the God who saved us? Do we know what He's like? Do we enjoy and delight in the favor And blessing of sitting at his feet and allowing his face to shine upon us. Well, as we come to God's word and what Jesus is pointing out in the Sermon on the Mount. And you see how often he repeats the terms of children and father. Children and father and the Lord's prayer. Pray to your father in this way. Jesus is pointing out that as a good and perfect father... God's desire is that His children would be right with Him. His desire is that His children would grow up with Him and not apart from Him. And His desire is ultimately that His children would grow up and become like Him. And this, brothers and sisters, is the love of God and its purpose and its intent, that we would ultimately be testimonies of His great grace, that He has poured His love into our lives. For what? So that we can keep on doing the same things? No. So that we can do the things that separate us from the love of God? No, absolutely not. It's God's joy and delight in being together with His children, that we would be with Him and that we would be like Him. And brothers and sisters, this is a great deal about what righteousness is really all about. We think of righteousness in terms of a list of commands that we need to obey, and we fail to see, and we do that legalistically because if we can cape two or three of them, we feel better about ourselves. But we fail to see that the end game here is really about our fellowship with the God who created us and saved us for Himself. And as we learned before, brothers and sisters, because we talked about this before retreat. Righteousness is really all about being conformed, perfectly aligned, united with the holy character and will of God. It's being one with the Lord. That's what it's about. And not having anything in our lives that would separate us from our Father in Heaven. And of course we know what separates us. Our sin. Our selfishness. And so... This is why Jesus later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 48, later in the chapter, He says to His disciples, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa. It's a high standard, right? How many of us meet that standard? I certainly don't. But, brothers and sisters, Jesus is consistent. Being righteous and being right with God, and to have a right relationship with God, which is what this is all, is all about, is about being right like God, and being righteous like God. And as we noted before, righteousness is an attribute of God, and that's why the psalmist says in Psalm eleven seven, "The Lord is righteous; He loves righteous deeds." And the consistent testimony of God's word is that the Lord is perfectly right. He is perfectly true. He is perfectly just. And He is perfectly good. And His righteousness is expressed in two ways. First, through His perfect love and affirmation and exaltation. Lifting up and affirming and blessing what is right and what is good and what is true and what is just. He perfectly loves these things. And he affirms them and he exalts them. And that's what blessing is. Blessing is merely God affirming what is right, what is true, what is good. But there's another side of God's righteousness. And it's his perfect hatred and condemnation and destruction of all that is not right. All that is not true. All that is not good according to his word. And that one, that's where we start to get a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because how many of us really meet that standard? But that's what curses, brothers and sisters. Curse is God's condemnation and cutting off what is not right, what is not true, what is not good. Now it makes us feel uncomfortable, but it doesn't stop Americans from protesting in the streets about anything and everything that they think is not right, not good, and not true. We're screamers for that, right? We want justice. We want what we think is wrong to be cut off and condemned and legislated out and and tossed out. And we want what we think is right and good to happen. The difference is, brothers and sisters, those things are based on what we think is right and what we think is good. Very seldom is it based on what God thinks is right and what God thinks is good and what God thinks is just. And there's a huge difference with that. Praise God, He is right and He is just. And praise God that His justice is based on the truth that He is always righteous, He is always just, He is always perfect, and He always loves perfectly what is right and just, and He always perfectly hates and opposes what is not right and not just. And from Genesis through Revelation, this is the God of the Bible, brothers and sisters. And it should frighten us. Not a little, it should frighten us a lot. But the good news of the Beatitudes, brothers and sisters, is that when God graciously brings a sinner to repentance and faith in Christ, not only does he give us a new king, he gives us a new heart. And that heart is the heart of a child of God. A heart whose conviction and desire and direction is no longer for ourselves and our world and our righteousness, The heart of a child of God is a heart that desires its Father. It's a heart whose desire is for our Heavenly Father. It's a heart whose desire is to be right with Him. And this is what the first four Beatitudes are all about. Poverty of spirit, grief over sin and anything that would separate us from the love of God. Meekness and devotion to the Lord. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we see where Jesus is walking us is in what he's declaring to be blessed and good and evidence of a life that's transformed by the grace of God is this conviction, this desire, and this direction of a heart that has done a 180. Where instead of being totally devoted to ourselves, it's devoted to the Lord. And Luther made this point. he noted that our fundamental problem is that we are, and he says this in Latin, Incurvatus in se. In, in Latin, it means we are turned in on ourselves. And that is a, how shall we say, 14th and 15th century way of saying we're self centered, we're self absorbed, and we're self righteous. And that is our core problem. And it comes from our pride and our sinfulness that we're turned in on ourselves. And brothers and sisters, if we think that Martin Luther is out of touch, we just have to look at our world around us. We just have to look at the medications that we take. We just have to look at the protests on the street. We look at the things that we're getting upset about. And of all people, we Americans, who is more self-absorbed, more self-righteous, and more self-centered, and more self-destructive? And praise God, this is why Jesus came into the world. He came in to save us from ourselves. Yes, from the wrath of God. Because what we are is not good. Because we weren't created to be this way. And it's a testimony of our sinfulness. Our selfishness. And our selfishness is really expressed in living for what is right and good for me. That phrase, we use it. All of us. Myself on occasion. You do you. You do what's right for you. And we see that our standard of what is right and good is really what is right and good and comfortable and convenient for me and what works for me. And that becomes my standard. And when immigrants are no longer convenient for me, they got to go. And when guns are no longer convenient for me, that's got to go. And when certain policies are no longer convenient to me, that's got to go. And when what's right is whatever works for me and I decide my gender wants to change or my friends want to change or all of these things, well, we need to legislate that too. And brothers and sisters, is it any wonder that we live in a world of intense anxiety and criticism and judgmentalism and just a destructive tearing ourselves apart because all we're doing is incurvatus In say, we're living for ourselves. And brothers and sisters, I know that's the horrors of the world outside, but we look at the ways in which we judge one another. This idea of our standard of righteousness, our economy of righteousness, which is built around ourselves. And I know you're asking, what does this have to do with blessed are the merciful? But brothers and sisters, self-righteousness leaves no room for mercy. When our righteousness is built on ourselves, we're merciless. Just think about the criticisms of how we spread peanut butter on toast and how you squeeze the toothpaste and how you pull on the toilet paper and all the other discussions and disputes we have because you don't do it the way I like it or the way I do it and my way is right and I'm the gold standard from everything. From how people sing and what they do in worship and what praise songs they sing to what clothes they wear. Well, with the first four Beatitudes, Jesus is showing the good news of the gospel as Christ has come and he set us free from that. Because poverty of spirit and mourning over our sin and our selfishness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and meekness are all about a heart that says, I don't need that anymore. There's something far more wonderful and better. It's the love of God. It's the righteousness of God. It's the goodness of God. He's right, I am not. That's what I need. And suddenly our heart's desire is to be pleasing to him, not pleasing to myself. That's what righteousness is about, brothers and sisters. And, and you know this in day-to-day life. For any of you who have quote-unquote ever fallen in love, and you know how much I hate that saying, falling in love. It's like you fell into a trench somewhere. <laughs> and you got stuck and you can't get out, Right? But nonetheless, when you fall in love with someone, you know that suddenly everything changes. You comb your hair differently. You dress differently. Your schedule changes. When you take phone calls, is different. Suddenly, what food you cook and what you want, And everything is about what can I do to be pleasing to the person I've fallen in love with so that I can spend time with them. Sadly, it doesn't last, does it, brothers and sisters? Newly married, there's hope. That hope's in Christ. No, but it wears off, doesn't it, after a while, right? But not so with the Lord, because his righteousness is something completely different. And herein lies the problem that Martin Luther discovered as an Augustinian monk. He learned that in and of himself, like a newborn babe crying for its mother and its mother's milk, that there's no amount of crying and no amount of effort, no amount of work, can give us what we so desperately need and what we so desperately desire as a child of God. And that is the righteousness of God. And to make matters worse, Martin Luther knew that by virtue of the sinful lives we've already lived, according to God's righteousness, we deserve nothing but his wrath and his judgment. Guilty many times over. And it's in this very painful way Martin Luther became aware that he didn't just need the righteousness of God. He needed the mercy of God. And nothing less than the mercy of God would suffice to make a sinner right with a righteous God. And this, brothers and sisters, is why Martin Luther loved the gospel and why he hated indulgences. And this brings us to Our next point, God's mercy is never separate from his righteousness. God's mercy is never separate from his righteousness. We live in this world where we kind of split the two up. And it's a test of pagan religions. You in the Catholic Church, you want grace and mercy, you go to Mother Mary. You want grace and mercy, you go to a saint who's going to be merciful. Because God the Father is waiting for you with a lightning bolt, right? And you look at it, it's the same in all the pagan religions. You've got the God of thunder, you've got the God of lightning, and then you've got the nice gods. And we have the nice God of the New Testament and the bad God of the Old Testament. And we see that extends to our churches and our ministries, right? You have the mercy ministries, those are the nice ministries, where people are loving, and then you've got the truth ministries, where the people are angry and screaming hellfire and brimstone, right? And you've got the people who like John MacArthur, and you've got the people who run to John Piper, right? And that's unfair to them because if you've met both of those men, you know that they are both gracious and firm on the truth. But nonetheless, that's how we go. We divide it up. And that very much, brothers and sisters, is an expression of our self-righteousness because we latch on to and claim things that we like that work well for us and we discard the rest. And it's the basis of false religions from the beginning of time. Take what you like and discard the rest. But as we come to God's word, what you see from the beginning, from Genesis through Revelation, is God's mercy is never separate from his righteousness. In Exodus 34, 6-7, through 7, Moses comes to the Lord and he begs the Lord to show him his glory. And it's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Moses has to take care of all these sinful people. He's got to go on this journey and they are broken, broken, broken. They've just worshipped the golden calf. And the thing that Moses yearns for is that he would see God's goodness and his glory. That is the bomb that he needs for his heart to care for these broken people. And so God graciously agrees to do so. And as God passes by in Exodus 34, 6-7, through seven, it begins with the Lord speaking his name. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. But then you go to verse 7 and it says, But who will by no means clear the guilty. And we see as God gives Moses his name and his glory in the entirety of his goodness, he shows in his goodness there is both righteousness and mercy and they are not separate. We see from the beginning... The Lord repeatedly reveals himself as the one true God who is not just righteous, and he's not just merciful, and he's not sometimes righteous, and he's not sometimes merciful. He is the God who is always righteous, always merciful. He is perfectly and eternally both righteous and merciful. Now for our fallen human minds, this is hard to get our minds around. It's a paradox. It's a tension because we don't function that way. We've got our good days and we've got our bad days. We've got our merciful days and maybe we've got our righteous days, right? Hopefully you'll get us on our merciful days. But well, we have a hard time with this, brothers and sisters, because we tend to think of God like ourselves, our experience, our frame of reference, our parents, and we use that to say, okay, this is what God is like, and we've got it all wrong, and that's what the gospel's about. The gospel's about changing us from top down and inside out. And so we're not doing well if we're just in a quote-unquote mercy ministry where we're taking care of homeless shelters and we're trying to follow in the footsteps of Mother Teresa. And our definition of mercy, when we look at it that way, very frequently when you think about it, it's about withholding judgment and punishment, not giving people what they deserve because we pity them or we feel sorry for them. And so we give people a pass. That's our definition of mercy. Giving people a pass because we feel bad for them. I feel sorry for you. It was hard for you. You were up all night. You went through a hard time. You said some unkind words. Let's give it a pass. But when we come to God's word, we see that mercy is something different. It's not pity. In fact, as we read the scripture this morning in Deuteronomy, God commands that we not pity what is evil. He makes an explicit command, do not pity. Where pity, very much, and you go to the Hebrew, it shows it's a different thing altogether from mercy. It's about giving someone a pass. It's about feeling sorry for someone. But in in scripture, mercy is an attribute of God. That is inseparable from his righteousness. I use this example. It's a fallen, broken example. But I say I'm like a short Asian man. You can't separate the two. There's not one time when I'm not Asian and there's not one time when I'm not short. They're both there and you're going to get both whenever you deal with me. But in a more wonderful way, every time you encounter God's righteousness, you will encounter his mercy. And every time you encounter his mercy, you're going to encounter his righteousness. And in the New Testament, Jesus gives us two parables to illustrate this righteousness and mercy of God that walk hand in hand. And you're familiar with them. So your homework this week is to go and read them. But I'm going to give you a short portion of it. And the first is the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. Matthew 18, verse 23. Jesus gives this parable, and the context is about forgiveness for sin. And it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, verse 25, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, but the word here is compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now you know the context. Matthew 18, Jesus taught, is talking about sin, the forgiveness of sin. And Peter's request, how many times do I have to forgive someone? And that first century Jewish audience knew that when Jesus was talking about debt, he was talking about sin. Debt is a metaphor for sin, that you owe God something, and you can't pay him back. And it's life for life. We've taken the life that he's given us, and we've filled it with sin, and we owe God a perfect life back. And the consequence of this debt and offense is that this servant is not right with the king. And in fact, it affects his whole family. Now, who is it who made this mess? The servant did, right? But who pays the incredible price and cost for this servant to be made right with the king and for his family to be spared? Well, those who knew that first century Roman Empire economy understood that the king was assuming and paying for the cost and price of this servant's mess so that he could be made right and so that his family could be set free. And that it was an incredible cost that the king was assuming. And in verse 33, the king sums up this whole episode by defining it as showing or having mercy. And we start to see what emerges here, that from a heart of compassion and love, the king pays an incredible price personally to make this debtor whole and right. The end, this person can be right with the king so we can live a life that is worthy of the king who pays the price. And we start to see what mercy is. Now the second parable is Luke chapter 10. The parable of the good Samaritan. And this comes in the context of a lawyer pressing Jesus on what it means to love God and love your neighbor. And in response, Jesus says to this lawyer, and he says, well, he asks the question, who is my neighbor, right? And Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And you know the rest of where this goes, that there's a Levite who passes by, and then there's a priest who passes by, and both of them cannot be inconvenienced. They're too busy doing their righteous works to actually care for this man who's been beaten and left half dead on the side of the road. And then in verse 33 of Luke 10, it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, what? Compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him what? Mercy. Now this time around, whose sin was it that resulted in this man lying half dead? Was it his sin? No, it was the sin of the robbers. And so we see these two aspects. One is the consequence of sin coming from the wicked servant's sin. Mercy being shown, paying the price to make that man whole. But here, on the other hand, here is someone who's suffering from someone else's sin. But still the same, mercy is the compassion and inconvenience and the heart of love that comes from an expression of God's righteous love where His desire is to make a sinner whole. And He does so whether it's that person's sin or the suffering that they receive from someone else to make that person whole. The ability to make them whole but the willingness to be inconvenienced and to pay the cost personally and to pay the price to make that person whole and right. Sinclair Ferguson writes, mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin, whether it's his or her sin, or the sin of someone else. And we see here so beautifully what it's about is what is right before the Lord. And that's why in Hosea 6.6, and Jesus quotes it, God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I don't want all your good works. I don't want your donations in the church plate. I don't want all your service and ministry. I want a heart that's like my heart. I want a heart that is right and right with God. And the expression of that is a compassionate heart that is willing to get dirty and willing to be inconvenienced and willing to suffer in order to care and make someone else whole. Who's able to do that, brothers and sisters? It ain't me. And it ain't you. And it ain't Mother Teresa. And it ain't a mercy ministry. There's only one person who can bear the cost and make someone whole from beginning to end. And that's the God who created us. And that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so you see with the mercy of God, it's never separate from His righteousness. It's not pity. It's not, we'll give this person a pass. It's not lowering the standard. It's not saying, well, it's not, you know, it's no big deal that you spoke unkindly to your spouse. It's not, Oh, it's no big deal that you didn't pay the bills. It's, that is wrong. That is not right. And I'm going to come in and pay the price. But in the first case, it's for the penitent who comes and asks for mercy. And in the second, it's the one who has suffered. And we see here, brothers and sisters, what hope it gives to people who are broken. Where is the hope for the wife who was abused? Where is the hope For the child in the foster home? Where is the hope for those who suffer? Whether it's their sin or someone else's sin. The remedy is the same. There is a God who is able to make you whole. Why? Because He loves you and He's willing to pay the price. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to the final point for this morning. The children of God's kingdom are the children of His mercy And his righteousness. The children of God's kingdom. Are the children of his mercy and righteousness. Brothers and sisters. Where do we most clearly see. God's mercy and righteousness together. It's at the cross right. It's at the cross. It's where God comes. And says I'm not lowering my standard. I hate evil. I hate sin. I hate wickedness. And it must be destroyed and punished. And cut off. But I love you. So I'm going to take the justice that you deserve. All my wrath. All my hatred of sin. And I'm going to pour it. On my very own beloved son who is innocent. In your place. So that you can be healed. So that you can be made whole. So that you can be made right. God's righteousness. His standard is not lowered. Not pity. I'm going to give it a pass. I personally am going to bear the price. And my son will bear it all. He was crushed for our iniquities. Righteousness and mercy. And the only righteousness and mercy that can make someone whole. And so that's why in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those, verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here's the beautiful promise. For they shall be satisfied. And there's only one who can satisfy. Their hearts are going to be overflowing with it. And then he says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And why are these two together? Brothers and sisters, the test of whether you have truly experienced and known the righteousness of God, not your righteousness. The test is whether you're merciful Because the only way you experience the righteousness of God, not your righteousness, is to have received God's mercy, His compassion, His love for you, His willingness to enter into your darkness and pay the price for your sin or those who have sinned against you. And say, it is covered, I will make you whole. And to know that mercy and to be set free of living for yourself... And instead, to live for the love and goodness of righteousness of God. And to be able to say, I can't save you, but there is a God who can. And I'm willing to be inconvenienced. And I'm willing to suffer. And I'm willing to have things be hard for me. Not because I can save you. But because there is a God who can save you. And that is the God who sent his son to die for you on the cross. And that, brothers and sisters, is a righteousness and mercy that can't come from a pope or from a pastor. And so we see what Jesus points out when he said, blessed are the merciful. He's showing, listen, the testimony of whether you really love God and you've spent time with him and you've walked with him and your life has been transformed by his grace is a righteousness that's expressed in mercy. Mercy. And that, brothers and sisters, as you see, is is something very different from a mercy ministry. Not that we shouldn't take care of the homeless. Not that we shouldn't look after the destitute. Not that we should not be kind to those who are suffering. But if it's disconnected, brothers and sisters, from the righteousness of God and the gospel. And the need for a sinner to know Jesus as their Savior and to be made whole. Not just on the outside and the inside. That's not the mercy, and that's not the righteousness of God. Because as we said, God's desire for His children is that they would be with Him, that they would be like Him, and that they would become good and righteous and merciful like Him. So, the question for us, are we merciful? And in closing, there are three C's that I want you to continue for our Consider for application. Their confidence, comfort, and convenience. Where do you find your confidence? For Martin Luther and the Apostle Paul, their confidence was found only in the cross. Not their education, not their works, not what they'd done. It's only in Christ. Their only righteousness and goodness came from Christ. The mercy that they had came from Christ. Their hope that they had against all of Satan's lies, what Eric talked to us about with the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It came from one place and one place alone. It came from the cross. And the consequence of that is where did their comfort come from? In a prison cell. It came from the cross. And as a result, what they were, were they willing to be inconvenienced by? in order for the sake of the gospel. Everything. Did you ever notice that Jesus was never in a rush? It was never a problem for Jesus to stop and minister to people. His only desire was to please the Father. And we see our confidence, our comfort, our convenience. These are things that we worship, brothers and sisters. But Jesus has come So that we could be set free from being self-confident, confident confident in myself, self-comforting, where what we're living for is what makes us feel comfortable and self-convenient, where it only works if it works on my schedule. And it's worth thinking about those things and how we live, brothers and sisters, because I think if we're honest with ourselves, myself included, as we look at our homes, our marriage, our parenting, our ministry, so much of it is built on what what makes me feel comfortable, what makes me feel good about myself, what's convenient to my schedule. And it's a mess. And that's because it's all built on self-righteousness. But the beauty of the gospel is Christ comes in and he sets you free from that. But he sets you free from that by bringing you to the cross. And as he brings you to the cross and you see how far you are from his righteousness and how much mercy you need, but how much mercy he's willing to give you, God's grace transforms your heart. He changes who you are. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens step by step. But as Sinclair Ferguson points out, maturity in the Christian life is expressed by a change in attitude and heart where we're no longer thinking about ourselves but we're thinking about how we can please God and how we can care for others. And brothers and sisters, as you consider those things, hopefully the thing that you consider the most is what an amazing and wonderful Savior we have. who gave everything, his comfort, his convenience, and everything that affirmed him, gave it all up to pay the price to make you whole. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, the mercy we have been shown, we do not deserve But thank you for giving it to us. Lord Jesus. Would our lives be spent with you. So that we can walk in your righteousness. And walk in your mercy. And share it with a world that so desperately needs it. In your name we pray. Amen.